We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 19. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, that's on page 1075. If you're not using one of the Bibles, I have no idea what page it's on. Uh, it's a longer, it's a longer section. 42 verses. We've already read it. And my guess is, my assumption is, you know this story. And that's what makes preaching this text, this chapter, so difficult, so hard. We all know this old, old story. And it sort of got me thinking of a story I had to read long time ago. Um, it's a story by Graham Greene, and uh, it's, a, it's a story that took place in West Africa, and I first... Uh, read this story because I spent a summer uh, living where this story takes place in West Africa. And it's a story about a police chief and a murder that takes place. And in this story, this police chief is dealing with trying to figure out what happened in this murder case. And all these people who are engaging with this victim who had just died, they're, they're really engaging with them in a sort of uh, compartmentalized way. They're distancing themselves from this horrific scene and they just start talking about it as if it's not that big of a deal. And eventually, as this person is kind of just talking or viewing this scene unfold, one character says this. And I think this represents, in some ways, the hardship of reading this story. The character in this story says this, Through 2,000 years, we have discussed Christ's agony in just this disinterested way. It's hard to kind of navigate, preach, think about the story of Christ and his crucifixion because sometimes familiarity might not breed contempt, but it can kind of breed some level of disinterest. And so this morning we're going to look at John chapter 19, and I hope That as we think about it, as we kind of step back and look at this story, we're going to see it with fresh eyes. Because really what John chapter 19 is all about, it is an answer to the most fundamental question in our lives, which is this. Who is your king? That's the question chapter 19 is going to address to you. Who is your king? Now, as Americans, when we bring up the whole idea of king, we kind of get uncomfortable, right? We rebelled against the king. We have an uneasy relationship with the idea of a king. And yet, all of us look to something or someone to guide us. All of us look to someone or something to protect us. All of us look to someone or something to dictate our lives. It might not be political, but we all look to some things to give us meaning, to give us purpose. When we're in a jam, when we're our backs against the wall, when things are not going well, we're looking for some way, something, someone to help us. We might not call them a king, but that's how they function. They are that thing in our lives, that ultimate thing outside of ourselves, which we're seeking to give us purpose, to direct our lives, to help us in whatever season we find ourselves in. 
There are many kings in our lives. Kings of pleasure, kings of power, kings of comfort, kings that preoccupy our minds, kings that are outside of ourselves, but ultimately the biggest king in our lives? Me. Not he or she or thee, but me. We all look to something, we all look to someone to be our king. More often than not, we want to be the little king in our little kingdom. And so the question that comes to us this morning is, when it comes to a king, when it comes to the king, how will we respond to the king when he enters the scene of this story? And there really is only one response. Actually, there's two responses, a cross and a crown. Those are our options. When we meet the king in our story, our two options are a cross or a crown. So who is your king? The big idea that's on the screen behind me, basically, if we could kind of summarize the main aim of this chapter, it's simply this, that Jesus is crowned king through the cross. Now, we saw in chapter 18 earlier that many people were responding to to Jesus in pretty outrageous and negative ways. At the end of chapter 18, the Jewish Jewish religious leaders are trying to get rid of Jesus. And so they send him to Pilate to do their dirty work. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea, and so they say, we need you to do this, our dirty work, so they give him to him. And then you see in chapter 19, if you look there, from chapter 19, verse 1, all the way to verse 16, you see this back and forth between the religious leaders and Pilate. Jesus gets flogged. And then there's this option back in, uh, at the end of chapter 18. There's this option that they say, I, I, I can, you can save face and you can take Jesus back. But they don't want Jesus, the religious leaders, do they? They'd rather have a known terrorist than Jesus. And so they cry out for Barabbas. They don't want Jesus, and so they send him back. And so three times, Jesus keeps getting sent back to Pilate, and then he's like, I don't know, I don't really see anything wrong with Jesus. But then the religious leaders keep just saying, we don't want him. They say he's broken a sacred law. He's got to die. They cry out, crucify him. Then there's the sort of third time Pilate then tries to give Jesus back to them. And finally, they sort of, the religious leaders push Pilate back into a corner, don't they? And they say, basically, if you do this, you're no friend of Caesar. Basically, they're saying, Pilate, if if you don't get rid of him, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar in the sense that your job is about to be in jeopardy. Now, it's obvious that the Jewish religious leaders, they want Jesus gone, don't they? We can guess at their motivation, right? They are the social elites. They have power. They have status, and Jesus is interrupting all of this. They want him gone so that they can garner more control, gain more power, more influence. And so whether it's manipulatively, whether it's, it's just a, a power play, they do everything they can in order to get rid of Jesus. And there really is a lot of tragedy in here. Here are these religious leaders who were meant to to use their power 
their, their status, their influence for God's glory. And instead, they abuse their power. They take their power and they use it manipulatively, abusively, demonically. So here are these religious leaders, and character one is these Jewish religious leaders, they want Jesus gone, right? But then there's Pilate. Pilate too wants Jesus gone, doesn't he? But, but, but Pilate wants to do more than just get rid of Jesus. Pilate wants to mock Jesus, right? You see that in verse 1, don't you? He, 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 he flogs them. Verse 2 then, Pilate allows for Jesus to have this thorn, this crowned thorn put on Jesus' head. And then he robes him in purple, which is the color of royalty. And he mocks Jesus as king of the Jews. And the point is, like, obviously this is not the king of the Jews. And so Pilate seems, even when he's afraid of Jesus, down in verse 8, when he's kind of like, who is this Jesus? And for a moment he's like, maybe this guy is more powerful. Maybe I should take him more serious. And he starts, like, asking him, like, who are you? And Jesus just is silent as Pilate interrogates him. And then eventually Pilate says, I have the authority to kill you. Speak. Who are you? And finally, Jesus says, you have no authority over me. And even in that interchange, Pilate then seeks to mock Jesus all the more. He then takes a sign, makes the charge. Here is Jesus, Jesus. And he says, he, he's the king of the Jews. And he writes it in every language so that everyone can see, everyone who can read in whatever language, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. It's mockery. He's making fun of him. And the Jews know it, right? They say, hey, hey, um, we think there's a typo here. Can you actually write, not he is king of the Jews, write like he said, he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, nope. I'm not hitting the delete key. What I wrote, I wrote. So we've got this first group of people, the Jewish religious leaders. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. Pilate's trying to mock Jesus. And then there's a third. Look at the soldiers down in verse 23. They try to profit from Jesus. So Jesus has been sentenced to death by crucifixion, which is a horrific and excruciating way to die in which you would be lifted up, nailed to a cross, and slowly but inevitably die of asphyxiation. And so to sort of maximize not only the pain, but the shame of this death, you would be crucified naked. And so Jesus has all these clothes, and so here are these soldiers, and they're trying to profit off of Jesus. And so one guy's like, I'll take this guy's Nikes. I'll take the Patagonia uh, coat. And they start just dividing up Jesus's garments to profit from him. Except for one, his, his tunic, the most expo- expensive thing. And that they know they can't divide in, in half. It's the most expensive. And so they play rock, paper, scissors for the tunic. And eventually one soldier gets it. So not only did the religious leaders try to Get rid of Jesus. Not only did Pilate try to mock Jesus, but these soldiers tried to profit from Jesus. This is always a 
a response that we've seen all throughout church history. To profit from Jesus. To, to sort of turn the narrative on its head in order to think through, how can I gain financial well-being or status by using Jesus? And here we have the soldiers just kind of living out this cold, cold world. You got to get some while you can. They're trying to profit from Jesus. And there's one more sort of negative response that we get. We're just kind of following the characters in the story. Go down to verse 31. At the end of chapter 18, we have this marker. We see it again uh, in the middle of chapter 19, verse 14, and we see it again in verse 31. It's the day of preparation, which makes this crucifixion an unfortunate day to have a crucifixion. Because what was, what was tradition is that a man or a woman, but mostly men, would stay on a cross until they slowly died. However long it took, you'd be up there. But this was Friday, and it was the day of preparation, meaning tomorrow would be the Sabbath. And they didn't want to wait, right? They had religious things to do. They had a holiday to observe. They had family outings. They had all these sorts of things to do, and so they're waiting and saying, can we just expedite this process? we got to get on with our lives. And so they went to Pilate and said, can we, can we break the legs of these men? Because that's what you would do. If you wanted to expedite the process, if you wanted someone to die quicker on the cross, you would break their legs such that they now cannot lift themselves up and get air in their lungs, and so they would die all the quicker. So this whole chapter, you see, in one sense, is framed by these various characters all trying to think through what to do with Jesus. And you have the religious leaders who are rejecting him. You've got Pilate who is mocking him. You've got soldiers who are profiting from him. And then you've got other Jewish people who are all surrounding him who are just saying, can we just get on with our lives? We've got other things to do. They're just riding Jesus out of the narrative. He's old news. They're compartmentalizing Jesus. Now, I'm certain that there are other responses to Jesus. There are sort of an endless amount of ways in which we can respond to Jesus and reject Jesus. But this chapter gives us a pretty good sampling, doesn't it? Of the common ways in which we respond to Jesus. And if you think about it, if you could like summarize you know, either rejection or profiting or mocking or kind of compartmentalizing Jesus, pushing him to the, to the outskirts of our lives. There's a common thread in all of them, aren't they? All of them are ways in which we're not just rejecting Jesus. We're saying, no, he is not the king. I am. You see, all of these ways are different ways of dethroning Jesus. But not just dethroning Jesus, but attempting to enthrone ourselves. The religious leaders are doing this. Pilate's doing this. The soldiers are doing this. The crowd around the cross are doing this. 
And it makes sense. If Jesus is king, it means by implication that I'm not. And if I'm not the king, then that has implications on my life, doesn't it? And that's scary. So those are kind of, if you just follow the characters of the story, those are some of the responses to Jesus. But there are actually two other responses to Jesus. And we see two, we can call them more positive responses to Jesus, starting in verse 19. So look at verse 19. Sorry, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So here we have four women. Four women. And here we have the mother of Jesus, Jesus' aunt, another woman named Mary, and then Mary Magdalene. And I think it's funny that you have four soldiers and their negative response trying to profit from Jesus, and now you have these four women who are standing at the cross, seeing Jesus, and then really, when you think about it, they do nothing. They don't respond in any way that we know of. They're just there. They're just there. And the whole thing revolves around Jesus' mother, doesn't it? Joseph presumably is dead or out of the picture. And so Jesus, as the son, is supposed to take care of his mother. But now he's about to die. And so he turns to one of the disciples and says, you're going to need to take care of my mother. You know, at the moment where in one sense, Jesus, you would think, just be thinking about himself. Jesus thinks about his mother. He just showers the scene with grace and love. That's what's bursting forth in the midst of the mockery of the cross, we have Jesus showering the crowd with his love. But notice what he asks. There is a response that he says. Jesus tells them to do something. And the entire gospel of John is framed with this word. Behold. That's all these women are called to do. Behold. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in chapter 1, he cries out, Behold, and now Jesus says, Behold. Behold your son. So to behold is to, to look with something with, that, is, that is great and amazing, and it's just to stare with amazement at something, to just appreciate the beauty of something or someone. This happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, my, my wife and I were going to a fundraiser and she was upstairs getting ready for like two hours. I have no idea what she was doing for that long, but she was up there for two hours getting ready. And I was downstairs. And right before the babysitters came, she started walking downstairs. And it was like one of those classic 90s romantic comedies, right? Time went slow, right? That cheesy music was playing in the background. And she was just slowly walking down, and I beheld her. She was all did up, 
and she looked amazing. And I just didn't say a word. I just stared at her. I beheld her and her beauty in the moment. That's what it's like to behold. And Jesus cries out on the cross, behold. And at least for me this week, I'm like, behold what? I mean, the scene is atrocious and ugly. And here are the women, and my guess is, though it's not described here, but my guess is they're just standing there in their grief and in their sorrow, taking it all in. Behold, what? But behold, they did, didn't they? What they would soon learn, but what they didn't know, and what our text tells us is that Jesus is, at this moment, at the lowest moment for God's Son, as it were, is the greatest moment for all mankind. What looked like a crown of thorns, what looked like a fool, what looked like mockery, what looked like weakness, what looked like losing, was actually the complete opposite. You see, at this moment, Jesus is crowned in glory. At this moment, as they're beholding Jesus, Jesus is robed in heavenly glory. Jesus, at this moment, is being lifted up over all the world, reigning. He is fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises. It's why he says, at the very end, right before he dies, he says, it is finished. So what is finished? Well, All of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the verses in the Bible pointing to the coming king that would push back the darkness of the winter of sin, all of those promises, all of them are being fulfilled in this moment. It's why, and you're going to have to fact check me, I counted 10 Old Testament citations and allusions in chapter 19, right? It's, It's why over and over again it says, This was to fulfill this. This was to fulfill this, right? Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And you're like, that's kind of random. And you're like, nope, that was to fulfill something. And then he's like, oh, you know, the garments are divided up. And the other's like, nope, that's also to fulfill something. Oh, they pierced his side. Thanks for the detail. Nope, that was to fulfill someone. Even his silence was all to fulfill something. And so here you have Jesus who enters in the scene and he's hanging on a cross And it looks like losing. It looks like a fool's errand. It looks like what the world would say. Oh, look. He just, he just was a tragic ending to a man's life. But even in all of these little details, our author is telling us that at this moment, Jesus is reigning, ruling. He is enthroned as the king. And every Old Testament prophecy is finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But not only is he crowned, not only is he pierced, not only is he afflicted and he goes like a lamb who is going to be killed in silence, he does all of this so that the winter curse of sin can be pushed back. Do you remember that great scene in the Chronicles of Narnia? You know, in uh, Aslan dies. And when he does, though all of Narnia was at one point under the curse of winter, when he dies, winter is no more. The curse is lifted. Jesus, as he died, 
is lifting the curse. The curse of sin. The winter curse of sin. And he is pushing it back. He is taking the curse of sin upon himself. And so, yes, it is a moment. And as you stare at it, it is tragic and sorrowful and heavy and sad and mournful. These women are lamenting the reality of Christ's death. And yet, if you turn it on its side, when you step back and look at it theologically and look at it the way John wants us to look at, then we are like John the Baptist in chapter 1. We are beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're beholding Jesus. That's the call. And it's amazing because when you think about it, Beholding is just another word for believing. Beholding is believing, and believing is becoming. These women, they don't have to do anything. I think this is, the, this is what makes Christianity so amazing and so different than any other religion. They are not called to, hey, hey, you women, get yourself together. Oh, get, get us down, get, get Jesus down from the cross. They're not tasked with anything other than behold. Behold the Son of God. Just believe in Him. Put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. Look at His beauty and His glory and treasure Christ. That is the response to Jesus that He calls out to these women. And they do. We're going to see that later on, but they do. They, in one sense, crown Christ as King by beholding Him believing in him. And it really does change their life. When you behold Christ, it changes everything. When you crown him as king, it changes everything. It reorients your entire life because you no longer are king. I mean, just think about it. This is how all conflicts work. All conflicts in one sense, relationally speaking, are a border dispute. That's what a conflict is, relationally. So two friends, like uh, two, two friends are having a conflict. You, you went to the movies and your friend was 20 minutes late and you're annoyed at them because they were 20 minutes late. And so what you're saying there as you're getting frustrated and angry at your friend for being late is you're saying, I'm king, this is my kingdom, and guess what? You made my life more difficult. And you will, I will enact my kingly justice upon you. And this is what it's going to be. I'm going to give you a few minutes of silence. I'm not going to invite you to a movie next time, right? This is how this all works. That's what conflict, relationally speaking, is. Whether it's marital, whether it's parent and child, it's a turf war. I'm the king. You are encroaching on my little kingdom. And to the extent that you are doing things I don't want you to do, I will repay and enact justice as I deem But that's not how the Bible frames it, is it? It's not, I'm king and I have my kingdom. It just throws all that out and says, Christ is king. And only as you behold him and believe in him, you are now in his kingdom. And now we interact with one another as Christians, not as, oh, you're a king and you're a king. No, no, no. Christ is king and we are in his kingdom. It's not a border dispute anymore. It reorients everything. As we behold Christ as king, as we crown him as Christ, it changes 
Everything. Just look at it. Look, look, how, look how it changes in uh, these two men at the end, chapter 19. There's two men that are listed. We have Joseph, a secret disciple. He's a secret disciple because he's a religious elite. He, he's probably of the Sanhedrin. He is an important person, and so he secretly is following Jesus. But then he, as it were, displays that I'm with Jesus, and he takes down the body of Jesus, and he puts him in his own family tomb at great financial cost and great social cost. Here's Joseph going public with his beholding of Jesus, believing in Jesus right here. But there's another character, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? We saw him in chapter 3. Nicodemus came, and we're, we're told here that the Nicodemus who earlier came to Jesus by night, he comes because he's also a religious elite, and he comes to Jesus because he wants to know how a man or a woman can, can, can get eternal life, merit eternal life. And he has this amazing encounter with Jesus. And he goes away, and you never know how he responds. You never know if he actually crowned Christ as king. But now he shows up, and he anoints Jesus' body for burial. And in one sense, ironically, he's anointing Christ as king, isn't he? So here you have Nicodemus, and here you have Joseph. Both now transformed by Jesus and living out the gospel, responding to Jesus as king. And I think it's amazing because if you take the women and you take Joseph and Nicodemus, you see the amazing power of Jesus among two different people. Joseph and Nicodemus were good. They were righteous. And what Jesus is saying is, your self-righteousness, your righteousness, you got to lay that down. Your righteousness is not enough. And so you need to lay it down. And then you get to the women. They're the social elite, but then you have the women there, the, the social outcasts at the time. And Jesus is saying, well, they can't merit eternal life because of their self-righteousness, their righteousness, their good deeds, how amazing they are socially. They don't get it, and they have to come through humility. Well, Jesus says the same thing, only in a different way to the women. He says, it's not your self-pity that's going to get eternal life as well. They need to realize that there may be badness or how far away they think they are from God. Well, that's not enough to keep them away from God as well. Whether it's the goodness of Nicodemus or the badness of Mary Magdalene, whether it's the social elite, the religious elite, or the social poor and outcast, both can enter this kingdom through this king, but both must do through as they bend the knee and crown Christ as Lord. That's the only way. This is why Christianity is so amazing, because it turns to the righteous, the self-righteous, and says, repent, you can't enter the kingdom of God because of your righteousness. And then it turns at the same time to those who are like, I'm too bad, there's no way, I've screwed up my life, too bad. And the gospel comes to them and say, oh, your badness won't keep you away from Jesus as well. Our goodness or badness can't keep us away from Jesus. Both, both groups on their knees needed to respond to Christ, crown him as king, and behold his glory.
And we see as they did, beholding is believing and believing is becoming. When you behold someone, you become like them. And as they beheld Jesus, crowned him as king, slowly they began to dethrone themselves as king. And they lived. They lived differently. In some ways, I saw this lived out yesterday. We're going to end with this. A few men were gathered in this room, and we were setting up the church, and we were praying. We were, you know, I had things I needed to do. I had a busy day, and so I was like, okay, I got to pray, set up, and I got to get in and get out so I can leave. And a man walked in. A man walked in, and he was, didn't have any shoes on. He had a hospital gown on. He had, it looked like broken out of a sane asylum. And he walked in, and he was saying these things that I had no idea what was going on. And instantly I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy's going to ruin my day. Like, what am I going to do? And so I'm like, how do I get rid of him? I pulled out my phone to call 911. This is the first thing I thought of, if I'm being completely honest. The entire time I was just thinking, how do I get rid of this guy? I'm the most important person for my Saturday. I had an important Saturday. I was excited about my Saturday. I had my to-do list, and I love my to-do list, and it is my God some days, and I was going to get to it, hell or high wire, and I'm sitting there going, like, how do I get rid of this guy? And instantly, as I was trying to figure out, Mark walked up and said, I'll take you to where you need to go. And he just got up and drove this guy somewhere. I don't even know where he drove him and had a conversation with him. And it was beautiful because he said, it's not about me in this moment. This is why John 13, or sorry, John 19 is so transformative. It's not just enough that Jesus dies for our sins. Yes, that and amen. It's not enough that we get to be in God's presence forever and ever. yes. That's true, and amen to that. It's not enough that we can reorient our relationship with God, that we can be in his presence, but it's also having done all that, it reorients everything so that we can live in light of that truth and realize that our life is not about us anymore, but it's about crowning Christ as king and dethroning ourselves and reminding ourselves time and time again, I'm not the king. But there is a king. His name is Jesus. And we can live all of our lives, all of our lives, within all of our relationships, reminding ourselves that we ought to point people to Jesus so that more and more men and women can crown him as king. Lord, we we are reminded in so many ways that we do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your love. Some of us struggle with self-righteousness. Some of us with self-pity. Some think we're far away from you. Some think we're too close to you. And yet, Lord, you look down at us in Christ Jesus on the cross and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we pray that you would, as painful as it might be, that you would carve out whatever pride or self-righteousness is in our hearts. We, we don't deserve you. Lord, we pray 
that we would be a community and a church that would be known among all things as a community of grace. And we pray that we would be a community that offers the grace of the gospel to anyone and everyone because you are worthy to be beheld. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.